Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but of that, you were cognizant. It's a great day to be alive. Hope you're having a good one. Hope you're aware of all the good stuff in your life today. I'm having a good day, and I'm excited to share this week's conversation with you. The other side of the conversation is a guy named Kevin Salwin. He's a very interesting cat. Among having done a whole bunch of other stuff in his life, he's written two books. One is called The Power of Half, and the other is called The Suspect. Let me ask you a question. Would you consider selling your big house and giving half your money to charity? Would you do that? Half the proceeds of the sale of your house, would you give them up to help other people that you've never met halfway around the world or all the way around the world? Doesn't matter. They're not close by. You don't know them. None of your friends know them. They're just fellow human beings. Would you do that? What would you give up? Would you drive a car worth half what you drive right now and donate that money to the food bank? Just think about it. Think about it. What could you do with half? That's the challenge Kevin has for us because his family did just that. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Today's Wednesday, February 5th. Hope you're back to full speed in the work week. Maybe you had a slow start on Monday because the Super Bowl, you were up late. Your kids were up late. You ate too much. Maybe you had a one Bud Light Lime too many. So you powered through Monday. And then Tuesday, you're up to speed. And Wednesday, you're gangbusters heading for the weekend. I thought that game was incredibly exciting. Didn't have a dog in the fight. So it was just fun to watch good football. The halftime show... Uh, A lot of people talking about it on social media. I did find it a bit odd. And some people on social media would say, well, I'm just a white person who's clutching his pearls, shocked that two Latina women uh, of middle age would gyrate like that for, for an extended period of time in front of such a large television audience. Well, let me just say for the record that I am all for gyrating Latin women. I'm woke like that. Or maybe I'm just, uh, I, I don't know, just stereotypically male. I didn't find anything wrong with it artistically or morally. I just find it very odd to be watching Shakira and J-Lo in between four 10-year-old boys. No, it wasn't just me and those boys. It was, a whole, it was their parents, my kid, and a whole bunch of other adults in this room. And all I could hear were these 10-year-old boys giggling as if Shakira was awakening parts of their soul and body that they didn't know existed. Well, they know it exists now. So thanks for that, Shakira. You might have reawoken some things in me as well, but that's a different story. All I'm saying, it was a a little bit odd. It was a little bit odd to watch that with those boys. I'm not saying there's any difference between Adam Levine, Levine, whatever, from Maroon 5 taking his shirt off last year. I didn't want to see that either necessarily, right? I'm just saying the performance at this week's Super Bowl evoked some things in these boys and it was awkward to be around it. That's all. That has nothing to do with money. It's just something that happened. I thought I'd share with you. So let me talk about our guest today. All right. This is a two for show because we've got, he's got two very different books. One of them is directly in the bullseye of what we talk about on crazy money. That's the first one. The other isn't, but it's very darn interesting. And I think you'll find it uh, to be worth your time to listen to. So the first one is called The Power of Half, One Family's Decision to Stop Taking and Start Giving Back, which my guest Kevin Salwin wrote with his daughter, Hannah, who was 14 at the time. And it's about the story of how at Hannah's urging, the Salwin family decided to sell their big 6,200 square foot house and dedicate half the proceeds to help a village in Ghana in West Africa. Now, it's been a few years, but you may have seen this story 
in some major media outlets like the New York Times, CBS Sunday Morning, or Oprah, the magazine. In the meantime, Kevin has published another equally fascinating book on a completely different topic. The new book, which came out late last year, 2019 that is, is called The Suspect, An Olympic Bombing, The FBI, The Media, and Richard Jewell, The Man Caught in the Middle. It's a gripping read. I read it. I read it very quickly. Uh, It reads like a novel. It's about the bombing in Atlanta's Centennial Park during the 1996 Olympics. The heroism of this guy named Richard Jewell, who was a security guard there, and the calamity that took place as the FBI named Jewell as a suspect while it was trying to find the perpetrator, which it did many, many years later. Kevin and his co-author, Kent Alexander, were consultants to the Clint Eastwood-directed film Richard Jewell that came out late last year and starred John Hamm and Olivia Wilde. I believe it was Olivia Wilde. Yeah, Olivia Wilde. So we talk about both of Kevin's books, and it's a really interesting conversation. Let me tell you a little bit more about Kevin. Prior to this book writing stuff, Kevin was a reporter and editor at the Wall Street Journal from 1981 till the year 2000. The year 2000. At the nation's largest newspaper, Kevin covered Wall Street and two presidential administrations. He later became the journal's national small business editor. Since leaving the paper, Kevin co-founded two media companies and consulted with such organizations as the U.S. Olympic Committee. He also spent a little time out there in Palo Alto, California at the Stanford Distinguished Careers Institute. He's originally a graduate of Northwestern University, has been very active in the philanthropic world, serving as board chair of Year Up Atlanta. That is the Atlanta version of the national job training philanthropic endeavor called Year Up. We interviewed the founder CEO, Gerald Chertavian, a few months ago. If you haven't listened to that one, it's a great interview and it's an inspiring interview. And Kevin also served as a member of Atlanta Habitat for Humanity for 12 years. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kevin Salwin. My wife and I decided that we would not be moving forward on any major decision until we had unanimity within our family. Mm. So to contextualize that, we very wise, experienced parents would not move forward on any major decision without the approval, if you will, of the two hormonal teenagers. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Kevin Salwin, welcome to Crazy Money. Hey, great to be with you, Paul. So, Kevin, take me back to the early 2000s and describe to me where you were personally and professionally. Well, in 2000, I had left the Wall Street Journal. I had been the national small business editor for my last job as part of 18 years there. And I had struck out on my own to to create the first of a couple of companies that I built, one that succeeded, one that failed. And my wife had retired as a managing director at Accenture, the large consulting firm. They had had their IPO and we were in pretty good shape. I would say money-wise, our kids were young and our kids were born in 94 and 92. So at the turn of the new millennium, they were eight and six and adorable as can be and a pain in the rump as can be. And you were in your phase of life that you refer to as the accumulation phase. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were, you know, 
keeping up with the Joneses and the Smiths and the Johnsons and everybody else we could think of. The world was a comparative game in many ways, you know, it was, and not just, I mean, it sounds even more obnoxious now when I say it this way, but, but it's become, it's very natural, you know, and, and the conversations with people are about where are you vacationing or where is another home, or, <laughs> you know, the, the kinds of things that are, stunningly insipid when you think about them in the rearview mirror, but they become important at that moment. And then, you, you know, and, and as a parent of elementary school children, you're just, you're trying to give them the best you can. So, you know, whether it's lessons for this, that, and the other, or, you know, or whether it's the opportunity to have experiences, you're just kind of loading it on there subconsciously in, in so many ways. So you're living a an upper-class life, maybe not billionaire life, but a very affluent life. You're living in a very large house in a beautiful neighborhood in Atlanta, Georgia. How are you instilling values in your children at that time? Well, I will say that we really focused on how we spent our leisure time. So for instance, as a family, we insisted on having dinner together every night. We would wait for one another until you know our kids were finished with sports practice or you know, my wife would finish a meeting. And so those conversations around the dinner table were crucial, we thought, to our family togetherness. I shouldn't even say we thought. They were crucial to our family togetherness. The other thing that we did was, you know, we were both, Joan and I were both intimately involved with nonprofit organizations around the city of Atlanta. So I was on the Habitat for Humanity board in Atlanta, and, and I was a, a founding member of an organization called Year Up that uh, helps young people who were raised on the wrong side of the opportunity divide, you know, move over into a networked area and build careers for themselves. And so my wife was very involved with the Boys and Girls Clubs, and she was a national trustee for, for United Way. And so we were engaged in the community and we would bring our kids to do things like work at the food bank and that kind of thing. We wanted them to understand that they were part of a larger community. So on the one side, we were accumulating a lot. On the other side, we were recognizing that in order to instill values in our kids, we had to live a certain way and have them participate in that way. Full disclosure for everyone, Year Up is the way I met Kevin a few years back at the house that we'll be discussing in just a moment. And we interviewed Gerald Chertavian, the founder of Year Up and the CEO of Year Up, was on an episode a few months ago as well, which I highly recommend you listening to as well. Okay, so you're very blessed financially and you're doing your best to balance that by teaching your children about living in the broader community as well. And one day, a few years later, you're driving through the city of Atlanta with your daughter, who at the time is 14 years old, I believe. She is. And, and you're at a stoplight. What happens? We pull up to this stoplight about a mile from our home. To her left, to our left, we see this scene that we've all seen in, in, um, in our urban lives. If we get there, it's, it's, a, it's a man sitting in, in kind of tattered, dirty clothing. And he's got a sign that says, hungry, homeless, please help. It's four words that we've all read many a time written on a cardboard sign in Sharpie. And, you know, my daughter from the passenger seat looks over. And just as she does, this beautiful black Mercedes Benz pulls up alongside of us on the right-hand side. And now I'm watching my daughter toggle back and forth between truly the have and have not in our community. And she starts to speak a little bit slowly at first, but then, you know, 
with, with more strength and says, dad, you know, if that man over there didn't have such a nice car, that man to our left could have a meal. And she just left it there. And I said, well, yes, Hannah, but you know, if we didn't have such a nice car, he could have a meal. But what happens tomorrow and the day after and the day after that? At that point, the light turns green and we go home. And I absolutely can tell, I can just feel that this 14-year-old bleeding heart kid sitting next to me, who, you know, I should quickly note was basically born with her heart outside of her, you know, <laughs> facing outward into the world. And, and she gets home and she cannot let this go. And she, you know, as I said, we have dinner together as a family. We sit down at dinner. This night, it's Chinese food that we've ordered in. And she cannot, she can't even wait for us to get past the brief blessing that our family always said. And she is blurting the story about the homeless man and the Mercedes and, you know, her brother who's two years younger, you know, is 12 at the time is listening and my wife is listening. And finally, my wife pushes back and she says, so what are you willing to give up in your life to make this change? I mean, are you willing to give up this house? Are you willing to give up your room? And our daughter says, our daughter's face just brightens. And, and I said, I thought to myself, oh, damn, what did you just put on the table? <laughs> really? You could have started with a car. The car would have been a good place to start. Yeah, I mean, we could have started with anything, you know, like my, just my shirt. You could have my shirt. But in the end, you know, as, as we started to have these conversations, what we decided to do as a family was to sell our big, beautiful house move it to one half the size and use half the money to try to make the world better. And it led us on this collective philanthropic journey as a family that completely transformed our lives. And we hope the lives of people who were engaged with us on the other side. So tell me about the old house. Oh, the old house is a big, beautiful thing. It's uh, my wife used to refer to it as, as her dream house. It's a, uh, it was built at the, uh, just after the turn of the, of the 20th century, it's one of the older houses in Atlanta, because, of course, Atlanta was burned after the Civil War or during the Civil War. You know, it was just a, a, a beautiful house with fireplaces in most of the rooms. It had an elevator that went from the dining room into my daughter's bedroom. It had chandeliers in the kids' rooms. I mean, it was it was an absolutely gorgeous place to have parties or to host host friends or whatever. At the same time, it was, as I think about it now, it was way more than any family needed. I mean, it was close to 6,000 square feet. And, you know, it was just the kind of place that started to feel just ostentatious within the context of how we wanted to connect as a family. In fact, there were times when, you know, I would walk into the house at the end of the workday and I would say, hey, everybody, I'm home. And the dogs would get excited and nobody else knew I had even come into the house. And so, um, you know, it was lovely to be greeted by the dogs. But at the same time, you know, I will say, you know, for at one time, I felt it was it was an appropriate size. And that time was after Hurricane Katrina, when we actually got a note that just an email chain saying, hey, I have some friends and family who got blown out of the out of New Orleans and need a place to stay. And so we just sent back a note saying, yeah, well, they can stay with us. We have a whole 
lower level that nobody ever goes down to. So this family came and stayed with us for three months and it finally felt like our house was being appropriately used. So there's some precedent for you all putting your charitable money where your mouth is. And some would say that's audacious to host strangers in your home, no matter how big it is, but you've done impactful things before. What happened after that night when Hannah bit on Joan's suggestion, and it's really Joan's fault here, I think. What (laughs) happened after that night? How quickly did you get to going from idea to plan? It took us roughly another week or two. Part of it was that we decided, my wife and I decided that we would not be moving forward on any major decision until we had unanimity within our family. Mm. So to contextualize that, we very wise, experienced parents would not move forward on any major decision without the approval, if you will, of the two hormonal teenagers. (laughs) And, um, you know, it was relatively insane. But, you know, one of the real questions for us was, how do we create a collective legacy Mm -hmm. for our family? Not just Kevin building Habitat houses or serving on that board or, or Joan being involved with the Boys and Girls Club. But really, what, do this, what does the Salwin family stand for as a family collectively? Mm. And that's what this provided us the opportunity to do. Have there been any long-term ramifications to your democratic approach to parenting? <laughs> Not uh, even as it's related to this project. So... I will say when Joan first brought up the unanimity idea, I was terrified of it because what I wondered was, and I said this to her, how do we say you have the authority and responsibility over this million dollar investment that we're making, but you, you, but you, you can't eat your ice cream before you eat your meal. Right. 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 You can't, you know, as Hannah got older, you can't have the car until you finished your homework and studying for a test. And what we found actually, once we came to that, that conclusion of the, you know, four people must be unanimous was that our kids' decision-making was better across the board. Yeah. That once they came, once they came to recognize how serious all of this was and that they had to step up and bring real game to the game, then all of a sudden it became an opportunity for them to take on more responsibility in other parts of their lives as well. I don't invest in a company unless I know that there is a 12 and a 14 year old on the board. (laughs) That's a good. Now that is a terrifying thought unless the company is like some acne cream. That's right. uh, That's right. It's proactive. Uh, Yeah. No, that's why I'm a terrible angel investor. Okay. So, (laughs) so you're going to sell your big house. We'll cut to the chase. You sell the big house, you buy a smaller one for about half. That's where the power of half comes from. And the difference goes to charity. And the big questions you have to answer, there's two of them. It's how and how much, right? Yeah, we already had pretty much decided on how much, although we kind of, we did it so horribly that uh, it's almost embarrassing to say, but we made our commitment to an organization called The Hunger Project. And we did that, I can walk through the process briefly, but we did that before we actually were able to sell our house. And we walked <laughs> good, right good in. Good plan, good plan. I know, <laughs> I know, yeah. It's, you know, <laughs> if we could, if, if I could have a mulligan on that one, I wouldn't mind. But um, <laughs> so what we decided to do was, you know, once we made our commitment and we put our house on the market, it took 
nearly two years to sell our house because we walked into the teeth of the late 2000s real estate recession. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, that was a significant oops. And it ended up that we sold our house for several hundred thousand dollars less than we thought we were going to be able to. And uh, so our, you know, our power of half project, as we came to call it, ended up being, you know, kind of a power of two thirds. As as Paul Simon uh, said on the song Graceland, I don't find this stuff amusing anymore. That's funny. Um, yeah, but so you have the how much, and then how did you figure out the how? How did you come up with the hunger project? So we worked again as at foursome. We would meet on uh, Saturday mornings for bagels and orange juice, and we started with the biggest of the big questions. You know, do we want to help a few people a lot? Or do we want to help a lot of people a little or somewhere in the middle? And then, you know, what subject matter do we think we can take on? So we discussed everything from the environment to military affairs to, you know, library services, everything you could think of, healthcare, of course. What we decided was, you know, as a family that we wanted to take on a distinct project, something in which our money would go would help people from beginning to end, that we wanted to focus on the working poor because we think that's actually a place where we could collectively make a difference. We wanted something that that was entrepreneurial, but most importantly, we wanted something in which the people who were what is often called recipients, that's not a term we use, we use partners, in which those people had plenty of say and plenty of authority over the work that they were doing. In other words, people attempting to help themselves were, in our view, the ideal people to be able to do this. And so we decided on the Hunger Project because we were already doing a bunch of work in the United States and we wanted to explore a little bit as a family. This was a project that was not just meant to be useful, but it was also meant to be a little bit fun for us. So the Hunger Project decided to uh, use our resources at a series of villages in uh, Ghana, Africa. And it was a place in which we said to them, where do you believe you can use the money most usefully? And where can it, where can it not only go the furthest, but go the most effectively? They said, how about Ghana? And we said, that sounds great. And we ran over to this wall map that we had in our family ping pong room. Where said, is it? Ghana, Ghana, where's this place? Where's this place? And we started to learn. I mean, it was just, you know, but when you say, okay, what I'd like to do is use this money to try to help people who are working their way up the ladder, who are living on a dollar and a quarter a day, you don't have to look very far on the planet to find, to find plenty of those people. I should quickly note that we, none of this meant that we were stopping the work that we were doing in the U.S. and specifically at that time close to home. So, you know, we stayed deeply involved with Habitat and with Europe and the Boys and Girls Clubs all domestically. It's just this was the project that we wanted to do. Right. So what was it like going from over 6,000 square feet to half that space? What was that experience all about? That was the greatest gift we ever gave ourselves. Absolutely, bar none. Because we had the opportunity now to sort of live more closely. And we had the opportunity now to be a family that was engaged with one another. We would literally see each other more often. We would literally be in each other's space more often. It doesn't mean that we couldn't get away from each other, but we, would, we could engage in those 
thousands of little ways. If people think about comparison that you can use is if you're in an office environment and there's a bunch of people there, you have a hundred little interactions with Jane or Joe every single day or every single week. And those interactions in the bigger house didn't happen nearly as frequently as they did in the smaller house. And so we engaged more deeply in one another's lives. Was there anything that was hard to give up? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, you know, we gave up a really beautiful kitchen for one that was really mediocre. We gave up a, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we gave up a nice backyard for one that was postage stamp size, you know, but, but these are nothings. I mean, they are, as humans, you adjust. And, you know, and if you think of what we were swapping that for, you know, who wouldn't give up more stuff for more closeness and togetherness with the most important people in their lives. So, you know, for, from my standpoint, you know, and from our family's standpoint, one of the things that got noticed about this was the fact that we were moving from a big house to a small house and it looked like an enormous and grand gesture. And, you know, I, I just want to make a point of saying it doesn't have to be a grand gesture. When we put this idea out there in the world, the only thing we asked for was that people look at their own lives and to make a decision about something they have more than enough of. We had more than enough house, as I hope I've described. What other people might have is more than enough time. So if you think about the, the kind of broader opportunity here, let's say you watch four hours of TV a week, and most people watch, most people might watch way more than that, but you cut that down to two. And instead, you get together with the people in your family or on your street, and you go clean up the neighborhood park, or you go and tutor a kid at a library. The total net cost on that is zero. But what you've done for yourself and what you've done for your community is immeasurable. Okay, you gave up a big kitchen. And I'm sure the Ghanaians at the ribbon cutting ceremony were appreciative when you said, oh, this is really important to your community, but you should have seen our old kitchen. That was, <laughs> but what you really did, which I mean, uh, what I was impressed with is that it, I would give up half my space, but to move for other people, that is an act of charity and kindness that I cannot fathom. Well, again, it's, it's, a, it's a question of what do you have more than enough of? And for us, the house began to represent something that was excessive and ostentatious. That's the Selwyn family life, right? Yeah. You know, one of the things that I loved about it was when people picked up this idea, you know, J Hannah, had a, Hannah had a friend who got all excited about it. She cut off half her hair for locks of love. She had another friend who would babysit and then would give up half her babysitting money to contribute to environmental causes. You know, we had kids in a school in New York who every one of them put a timer on their showers and then cut their showers in half so that they could reduce their family's utility bills and then ask their parents if they could use that money, you know, to help the local food bank. You know, those are things that are, that are no cost at all. And I think one of the, one of the wonderful things about the idea is that everybody and I mean, everybody has a half that they can do or give. And the big winner will be yourself. Yeah, you say the more you give, the more you get. It sounds like the giving paid off in spades for you all. But did people think that, did anybody think you were crazy? Ugh, of course. I mean, we, we, we literally lost friends over this. Really? Um, 
you know, we, we had, uh, we had, Joan had a very close friend who just looks across from her and says, this is not my reality. I, I don't know what to say to you. You know, Joan's mother called her up one day and said, what are you doing? Your home, your home <laughs> is not a joke. Your home is not a toy. You know, in, in the end, her mom became arguably the greatest supporter. But what we did, I, I recognize, is quite jarring. I, I jokingly refer to it as our moment of insanity. But in reality, I'm willing to give up certain things, including friends who can't understand this, if I know in my soul that what we're doing is bringing our family closer and making the world a little better. What was it like when you went to Ghana and you saw the, the fruits of your sacrifice taking root in the community there? Let me just, before I, before I answer that, just change one word. I would never refer to this as a sacrifice. Fair enough. Our yeah. family is in fine shape. We're doing just fine. The idea that giving up a large house for a smaller house is a sacrifice is one that I would just push back on. It just meant we were living in a smaller space. Everybody was still healthy. Everybody was still, in fact, we were closer together as a family. But anyway, to leap to your Ghana question, the idea that here were people who were building a brighter future for themselves. You know, so we met a woman named Comfort there. And Comfort lived in one of the villages that was that was engaged in as our partners. And she looked at this other village and realized that they had a palm oil press and palm oil is their big mm -hmm. both cooking and heating supply. And she said, well, why don't we do that here? And so she raised money from her own villagers as they did the work that was encouraged by our funding. And she built this palm oil business. They bought a palm oil press through a loan, micro loan that we were involved in or our money was involved in. And then they started to throw off cash. And when they did, they went and bought power poles. Oh, wow, cool. And they then through the advocacy program that the Hunger Project teaches, they went to the local, to the local utility and government and said, we have bought these power poles. You must bring us electricity. And so now this is a village that because of the, of the work that Comfort has done, it has now become electrified. And as the palm oil press has continued to throw off cash, they have built a kindergarten and a pre-K. And now they have seven times as many kids in school as they did before the palm oil press was built. This is, by the way, what would be referred to as patient capital. This is over a 10-year period. Right. That's absolutely one of the lessons I hope your listeners take away is if you're looking for immediate change, it ain't going to happen in the economic development world or in changing people's lives. It just can't happen that fast. As I was reading your reading this, rereading this, I actually read your book a few years ago after I met you and I was just listening to it again this week. And as I was listening to it, I remembered sort of some of the lessons as I started to get into philanthropy, I thought, oh, I'll just write a big check and everything will be better. And then the more you read about, I could help build this, I can raise money with some friends, we'll go build a school in Africa. Well, that's that's a nice gesture, but a school doesn't have, just have to be built. There have to be teachers that show up. Students have to show up and not work in the fields with their parents and all this kind of stuff. You're looking at long-term ecosystems that have to be 
developed and not just cured with the white man's gift overnight. Absolutely. And, and a few things in that. Number one is you're helping people change their own hearts and minds. You're working against systems that have been ingrained for centuries. And number two is one of the whole conceits that was a game changer for me is pushing back against the we're from the West, we're here to do this for you, as many mission trips end up being, or we're from the West, we're here to help. You know, the reality is people in poorer communities are arguably way more innovative than I'll ever be. <laughs> right. You know, just because they have to be. And so you can you barely know, operate you know, your microphone, Kevin. My God. Uh, well, I'm, I'm <laughs> now we're going to air my dirty laundry in public. This is <laughs> but if, if you think about, you know, the fact that I can buy things when I need them and I can buy help when I need it. But these are people who are often living in much more dire circumstances and they are figuring it out on their own. And I got to tell you, I wish I had their ingenuity. And so for me to come from the West and say, let me tell you how to do this, you know, is just frankly absurd. Well, this story is just amazing. And I could talk about it for an hour, but you've had a life and a career since then. And I find that just as fascinating, especially the story of how you and Joan, you mentioned how Joan had retired from Accenture to become a teacher before you even started the adventure with your homes. Uh, what's been going on with you all in the few years since your first book came out? Well, let me start with Joan because she's way more interesting than I am. But she became the uh, head of school at Atlanta Girls School on an interim basis, uh, did that for a couple of years. They asked her to stick around and be the permanent head. But she had other ideas. Joan is constantly, is constantly moving. And so we decided to move out to Northern California at the beginning of 2016, where the two of us did fellowships at Stanford. Joan has now created a business called Blue Ocean Barns, and they create a supplement for cattle that almost completely eliminates cow's methane output. Oh, wow. Since each cow is essentially the equivalent of a car, this is not a small issue in terms of environmental impact. So that's what Joan is doing. I, I move once a writer, always a writer. So I'm, I have just finished and published a second book. And it's a very different book from The Power of Half. The book is called The Suspect. And I co-wrote it with Kent Alexander, who was the U.S. attorney in Atlanta back during the 1996 Olympics. And The Suspect is the story of the 1996 Olympic bombing and the false accusation of Richard Jewell, the uh, hero who is uh, tried and convicted in the court of public opinion. And it's the story of of a man falsely accused and a man who, uh, you know, we unpack the entire story of how the Richard Jewell case went so horribly wrong. I did read the book shortly after it came out. I also saw the movie Richard Jewell, which is on the very same topic, and it was directed by Clint Eastwood. And movies are great, but they're a different storytelling format. I just found the book to be far more in-depth and full of insights that the movie didn't have time to get to. From everything from the, the story of how Atlanta got the Olympics, from the efforts of Billy Payne and Andrew Young, all the way through to the, the investigation into which you went in-depth. But can you briefly tell the story of who Richard Jewell is and how he became this suspect in the whole fiasco? To briefly set the scene, these 
Olympics in 1996 or the Centennial Olympic Games, this is a completely oversized event. It's incredibly exciting. 197 countries are invited for the first time ever. All 197 countries send sports delegations. So there's over 10,000 athletes and coaches in town. At the same time, there's 15,000 members of the world media. And, you know, the Olympics are a fascinating event because as it brings the world together in joy and athletic competition, it's also a place for crazies. And so behind the scenes, and this is where my co-author Kent Alexander had, had an opportunity because it was inside all the, all the FBI rooms, but behind the scenes, it's just this place where, you know, not just small crimes like people trying to pass fake bills at uh, Walmart or guys blowing up, you know, explosives in ponds in central Georgia so that they could they can catch fish uh, after they're stunned by the concussion or even people not paying prostitutes, all of which happened and all of which were minor crimes. You have but, to pay your it, prostitutes, people. Remember that. I, you know, this is where money really matters. But by the time day number eight comes around of the Olympic Games, there have at this point been 103 official bomb scare events in the city of Atlanta for the Olympic Games. And these are events in which they have to either bring out the robot to handle a package or a water cannon to shoot the package and or they're calling in a team from Dobbins Air Force Base. So day nine, Richard Jewell is this twice fired police officer from North Georgia. He's worked for the Habersham County Sheriff's Office about 75 miles north of Atlanta. He gets fired from that for being a bad driver. He goes to a small Baptist college called Piedmont College, where he is kind of a campus cop and gets fired from that job because he's just too overzealous. And he comes down to Atlanta to work security for the games. And he's going to basically use it as an opportunity to suck up to law enforcement in the park and find himself for another job when the games are over. He's a bit of a caricature too, right? He's, I mean, he's kind of a big, heavy guy, got a cheesy mustache and a little too over, over earnest for the law enforcement that are employed and have a career. Yeah, he, he is all of those things. And, and interestingly, those come into play, including his very rich Southern drawl. Those come into play later on because he ends up being profiled in the public's mind. But on, on uh, overnight at 1 a.m., Richard uh, spots this backpack, military-style backpack, under a bench near the tower that he is guarding. And he runs up the tower and he says to people, the 11 people in the tower, hey, you know, I see a suspicious package. It feels really weird to me. If I come back in, there will be no questions asked. You'll just get the F out of here. And so he comes back down. They try to find the owners of the pack. They can't. They call in the ATF and FBI agents who are in the park. They crawl slowly to the bag, pen light in hand, and they look in, which, by the way, they shouldn't even have unbuckled the pack, but the ATF agent went with his gut. They open it up, and they see in there what will end up being described by the ATF as the largest pipe bomb in history. <laughs> and um, and so at this point, Richard Jewell runs back up the tower, gets everybody out, comes back out, helps to create a perimeter. There's 50,000 people in the park. There's He's pushing back people. 
you know, now first 15 feet, then 25 feet, and the bomb goes off before they're able to call, before they're, the folks from Dobbins Air Force Base are able to come there with, with a diffuser for the bomb. But still, instead of scores of people being killed, one person was killed from the bomb itself. And for a couple of days, Richard Jewell is paraded around as a hero. His employer asks him to be on CNN and do interviews with USA Today, et cetera, et cetera. On the Tuesday morning, day number three, after the bombing, he goes on the Today Show with Katie Couric, who tells him she thinks he's a hero. And what he doesn't know is, as he's leaving that interview, he is being tailed by the FBI because they they now see him as the lead suspect in the case. Thus begins this this media circus that plays out in front of his and his mother, with whom he lives in a small apartment in a in the not fanciest part of Atlanta. They're camped out there for weeks, I guess. What's going on with the FBI at this point? Well, the FBI is desperately trying to quote make the case, and so they have. There's one lead agent in particular named Don Johnson. Yes, there is a, actually an FBI agent named Don Johnson. Played by John Hamm in the movie? Yeah, although they fictionalize that character, but they composite that character. But, but Johnson is absolutely convinced to his core that Richard Jewell is the bomber. And as he does his interviews in Habersham County and all the other places where Richard Jewell has both worked and lived, he is desperately trying to seek the evidence to make that case against Richard Jewell. And by the way, many others within the FBI at this point also believe Richard Jewell is the guy. You know, they have, they have quickly leapt to a place where Jewell is the logical suspect for lots of reasons, including that kind of, that profiling that I was talking about of a fat Southern drawling a guy who lives with his mother at the age of 33, you know, and so mentally they have come up with this, with this idea, Richard Jewell is absolutely the guy. And in Quantico, Virginia, the behavioral science unit puts a team on Richard Jewell and they are trying to figure out to create a psychological profile as they do in many cases. But in this case in particular, they don't do a profile of a generic bomber of who might have done the Olympic bombing. They do a profile of Richard Jewell personally. That's the wrong and direction. Scathing, scathing four-page document that has not been released until we were able to find it in our book research. And we lay it out there for readers in a way. But I mean, it's got things like having lost two jobs in law enforcement Richard Jewell lacks what he needs to be a real man. (laughs) And it's just, you you just kind of read this and you go, whoa, how did they go from that point to that point? But, you know, it was absolute, it was absolute rush to judgment and presumption of guilt. As you're reading it, and as you look at Richard Jewell and read his description, it is a guy that lives with his mom in his 30s. He's not a huge winner at life. He does have all kinds of weapons and things like that. I mean, it's, it is lot, you, you can see how they would fall into that trap of pinning it on him. And yet they didn't come at it the right way in, in any way at all. Well, you could see how they would fall into a position perfectly logically of investigating him. Mm-hmm. 
pinning it on him is, is another leap altogether. You know, for instance, in 1984, just 12 years before the, Olymp- the Atlanta Olympic Games, when LA hosted the Games, there was this Turkish team bus and a, an, an LAPD officer finds a bomb on that bus. He rips it off the bus. He runs down the tarmac and gets the bomb to a safe place. The LAPD chief, Gates, says, oh my gosh, this was one of, this was, might have been the most heroic thing I have ever seen an officer do. He gets commendations for about a day, and then everybody realizes he planted the device, and it was a hoax. To be a hero. And yeah. so, yes, there was precedent for this. There was also precedent of Richard being overzealous. And, you know, there were plenty of people calling and saying he was a weird guy or he set off explosives. He would say silly things like he walked into the park before the games began and he walked over to a guy at a different tower than his. And he said, hey, so what's that thing rated? You know, will will you think it'll withstand a blast? (laughs) Well, why would you even ask that question? Well, in Richard's mind, he was kind of intrigued by how explosives worked and how people built things. But, you know, it translated very poorly. So then the media gets involved and puts even more pressure on the FBI. Yes. Our third lead character, in addition to Richard Jewell and Don Johnson, was my, candidly, she was my favorite character to write. Her name was Kathy Scruggs. She lived larger than life. I mean, she was, she was sexy. She was profane. She drank a lot. She smoked a lot. She kept a gun in her purse next to her perfume. That's a woman and, right there. Yeah, right? I mean, she was like right, teen, right out of the 1930s newspaper wars and an absolutely delightful character to write because she was a great reporter and the cops loved her. They just loved her. And so after the bombing, she decided she was not going to wait for any kind of announcement. She had a motto of, I'm not in the business of being last. And she decided that she was going to break this story and figure out who the FBI was looking at. She didn't know, of course, that Richard Jewell wasn't even the first person they looked at or the second person they looked at. Richard Jewell was their third lead suspect. She didn't know that. But when she worked really hard to get her sources to tell her who the FBI was looking at, they were looking at Jewell, and she gets that leak from a source in law enforcement. And we reveal, by the way, in the book, how she gets that leak, how that whole reveal happened. And I won't ruin it for your listeners you know, who she, who she determines, you know, who the leaker was, but absolutely. She runs a story. She gets the paper to run a story well-sourced by the way, that says that the FBI suspects that the hero was the actual bomber. And that, that person was Richard Jewell. Turning his life upside down. Completely. I mean, uh, you know, somebody at the Atlanta journal constitution walks the story down to CNN, CNN reads it on the air and now this becomes an international story. 96, I should quickly note, is this fascinating pivotal year in media because, as I said, CNN is already up and running, but that's the year that MSNBC starts, Fox News starts up, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune all go online for the first time. Right. So now the pace of media has completely accelerated, and it's the year, and you could actually argue that the Jewel case is the case, in which immediacy starts to take precedent over accuracy. 
completely transforms people's life. And that's one of the big takeaways is that accuracy was sacrificed for, for the news cycle. As I'm reading the book and watching the movie, I'm thinking, well, God, in the last 24 years, I mean, the cycle has accelerated that much more. What would that story look like in today's world of smartphones and social media? Well, that story happens all the time, right? And if you think about the, you know, we did it in the, collectively as a, as a society in the Boston Marathon bombing. We identified the wrong person. We did it in the case of the Duke lacrosse players. All these people were sort of tried and convicted in the court of public opinion. Then when you throw in the overlay of social media, you realize the Richard Jewell story was a social media story just set in a pre-social media era. But now what happens is we're involved as news consumers and news publishers. If you think about the idea that we take these things without knowing their veracity, we take this type of information and we, we retweet it or we Facebook share it. And when we're complicit in this, you know, I got to have information right now. And I don't know about you, but I, you know, I, I'm not innocent in this. When there's a big story breaking, like the Kobe Bryant story recently happened, you know, if, if I'm looking for more information and I'm on CNN, I'll flip the channel to Fox News Channel. And I'll say, what do these guys have? What does NBC have? Mm-hmm. What is, you know, so I, as a news consumer, am rewarding the organization that has the most information. And as you, we could tell in the Kobe Bryant case, there were many news organizations that were misreporting what actually had happened in that case. At one point, I saw somebody was reporting that Kobe Bryant's wife was on the helicopter. Mm. Well, you know, I'm not saying that news organizations were always perfect before, but news organizations now have to be so fast. And what has happened with our news society is that we decide everything should be knowable right now. And that's a complete fallacy. There is just some things that aren't knowable right now, but we've lost our patience to be able to give people the benefit of the doubt. Right. At the time, during 96, you were the local reporter for the Wall Street Journal in Atlanta. Is that correct? Yeah, I was, I was actually the news editor in charge of Southeastern coverage. Yeah. Did you publish anything that you wish you wouldn't have published about Richard Jewell? <laughs> God bless editors in New York. We published nothing that we wished we hadn't, but that was not because of my doing or my colleagues. We in Atlanta really wanted to run Richard Jewell's name. We had heard it from three different sources. We didn't realize they had all heard it from one another, but we didn't have Kathy Scruggs' sourcing on it, you know, where she had it from somebody who actually really knew the information and had also seen the behavioral science unit profile. But New York said, we don't have enough here. And in particular, the managing editor, Paul Steiger, said, we don't have enough here. Let's wait. And we in Atlanta were pretty angry at that time. We felt like we were falling behind in the story. What a gift that was. Interesting. Why did you want to tell this story now? The Richard Jewell story is, uh, from my taste, it was, it's a fascinating time to tell the story because I think we're at a point where, from a media perspective, from a human perspective, we need to realize that there is an actual human toll when we run these kinds of stories. And that our decisions to leap to judgment and our decisions to always want to have an answer actually do have a social cost. And in an era in which 
the media gets accused repeatedly of fake news and the news consumer is just diving at anything that, that they can find. I think these are cautionary tales that need to be told. And the reality is, you know, here we are a couple decades later, Richard Jewell is finally getting a plaque in Centennial Olympic Park. There are some people who are talking about whether he should get, a, get some kind of medal of honor from the White House, that kind of thing. And I, I just think in, in a society in which we have, we have no shortage of unsung heroes, that shining a spotlight on those heroes is always important. And it should be said that he passed away a few years ago, so he won't be attending the ceremony. He won't, but the good news is his mother is still alive, and she will be, and his widow is still alive, and she will be. And I think those are, those are important people to honor here as they have lived, you know, as they lived with Richard during these incredibly dark you know, months and years that he had after he was falsely accused. I'll quickly add that, you know, our book is not a downer. Our story, this story is not a downer. Richard has much joy in his life, even though he does pass away prematurely, but he has much joy in his life. And the tale of, of his life and how this case went so horribly wrong, I think is a, is a really, is an important tale to tell this point. No, it's a terrific read and I unqualified endorsement. And especially as an Atlantan, I remember, I mean, I couldn't have told you before all the Richard Jewell stuff and your book, the Richard Jewell movie and your book came out that I was, I hadn't thought about him for 20 years. And I honestly couldn't remember if he was guilty or innocent. And, and I think, I think a lot of people are like that. We found that in our reporting as we would talk to people about the book and, and people would say, Hey, are you talking to Richard for this? Uh, no, that would be really difficult. He passed away, but but we did end up doing 187 interviews. We read through over 90,000 pages of documents. We did multiple Freedom of Information Act requests and all to get it to a point where we could put it in a format that was like narrative nonfiction. So if you think about, you know, Devil in the White City or The mm -hmm. Boys in the Boat mm -hmm. or even mm -hmm. In Cold Blood, what we really wanted to do was write something that felt like a novel, but all of it was true. Yeah, for sure. And it reads like one. So really enjoyed it. What motivates you now? You've done your thing at Stanford and your kids are grown. What are you working for these days? Well, I've been doing work related to this book and obviously related to the movie Richard Jewell. And I've got, I've got four or five, maybe six projects that I'm that I'm kind of looking at as my next project. I'm not a fast worker. <laughs> so, so I live with, I live with my projects for a long time and I live with the characters that I write a long time. And I'm, and I'm very choosy. Like, for instance, in this case, I really wanted to write about Richard Jewell. I really wanted to write about Kathy Scruggs and about Don Johnson. I was way less interested in writing about Eric Rudolph, the actual bomber of the 1996 Olympics and several others afterward, because he's not an interesting person to me. He's just, he's almost, if, if you were to write a caricature of what a person who bombed the Olympics might look like, you know, he lives off the grid. He's he's anti-government. He hated he hated just about everybody who wasn't him. So he hated Jews. He hated blacks. He hated people who wanted a collectivist world. You know, and so he wasn't actually a very interesting character to me. I never could have written a book about Eric Rudolph. And so that's all kind of a long way of saying I'm very choosy about the next project that I work on. But I have kind of big buckets of ideas and. When I'm not traveling for book tour, I go to the library and I start to research what's been written in those areas. 
I may go back to the to the turn of the 20th century for my next project. That's what I'm kicking around at this point. All right. Well, I can't wait to find out what that's all about and look forward to reading the next book. For our listeners who found both of these stories interesting, the first book is called The Power of Half, One Family's Decision to Stop Talking. Sorry, The Power of Half, One Family's Decision to Stop Taking and Start Giving Back. And the more recent book is called The Suspect, An Olympic Bombing, The FBI, The Media, and Richard Jewell, The Man Caught in the Middle. They're both co-written by my guest today, Kevin Salwen, S-A-L-W-E-N. Besides Amazon, searching for those two great books, Kevin, where can people find out more about you? Oh, gosh. I'm, I, I'm unfortunately all over the internet. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, But, uh, you know, I, I think what holds these two stories together is the idea that what sometimes seems impossible can be possible. And I think if people see their own lives in a way that, that allows them to step outside the, their norm, they have an opportunity to do really powerful and great things. Awesome. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you. Thank you again, Kevin, for taking the time to join us on Crazy Money. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, if you're interested in a copy of either The Suspect or The Power of Half, see links to Amazon in the show notes. They're not even affiliate links. They're just regular links to help you find another great book to read. Also, if you happen to like what we're doing here at Crazy Money, take a second to scroll down to the bottom of that their iTunes app, if that's what you're on, and rate and review. Throw me a few stars and a few kind words. If you're on Spotify or Pandora, follow me. Follow me. That's what you want to do on those their apps. And, you know, Google, I'm sure they've got some things on there too. I, don't, I haven't seen it yet. I don't know. I've got to be honest. I don't know. <laughs> oh, dear. How do we end this? Oh, here's what we do. Thanks again to uh, my editor and producer, Mike Carano. Mike, make me sound smart.